It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. 16th season, this is it? This is it, 16. Can you believe it? No, I can't. I was actually just sitting here trying to calculate. So that's when I turned 50, I remember coming out here, birthday party, whole bit of, so you'd already been on the air two years. Yeah. Wow. Think about that. I can't, I, I don't, I don't even believe it. That's like 12,000, 15,000 guests, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable. And you know, it, what, what I'm often reminded about is I remember, because this is the 20th year of the trial, that's right, isn't it? That's the 20th year of the trial. Yeah. And I just remember being in that little car, driving to trial, and sitting there with you, and feeling that there was something powerful to be shared in uh, the lessons that you were giving me. Uh, for people who don't know, I was on trial for saying something bad about a burger in 1998, and you were the guy who helped get me through it. And I was feeling that there was something that the that the the way you were helping me, telling it like it is, um, could be helpful to <clears> others. <throat> I had no idea that you'd be on the air 16 years later. Well, nor did I, or that I would ever be on the air, mm-hmm. of course. And, you know, you're saying, you know, telling it like it was, you know, as you know, when you get in trial, because we've been there more than once together, Yeah. when you get in trial, that train is rolling down the track. Yeah. And you got to make decisions and take positions right now. Right. Because you don't get any do-overs. No. So it's like you got to get this right the first time yeah. and get it done. And so it's, I mean, the pressure's on. Yeah. And I remember <clears throat> I was going at it from a philosophical point of view, like, why is this happening to me? I need to know the reason. Which I think is what happens to a lot of people when they're in charged uh, crisis situations. You want to know why is this happening to me? And you were saying it doesn't matter because these good old boys are going to hand you your ass on a platter. I'll never forget. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> doesn't I matter said the that what. maybe a little more. <laughs> a little no, more, no, that was better. very eloquent. These, yeah. guys, these good old boys are going to hand you your ass on a platter if you don't figure it out. We were sitting in trial and you leaned up and said, uh, I don't see any peers over there. <laughs> I don't see anybody that looks like me. I don't see me over there at all. At all, at all. But you know, um, from the very first show we ever did, 
and your directness, your ability to tell people like it is, is what I knew that the, what the country was in need of at that time. And now you've done it for thousands and thousands and thousands of guests. Do you see that there's a core, there's a core <coughs> um, fault or failing that people don't get in terms of taking responsibility for their lives? There's got to be a <coughs> thread that you've seen all over all these years. You know, there is. And I, I tell you what, we are, a, I think what I see is we're a society that has been marketed. We are marketed to, our own lives are marketed yeah, to us. I mean, yeah. think about it. Everything, when you watch a commercial about fast food. Right. If you look, they don't hardly ever show the food. They show everybody happy, happy. in the lobby. They show fellowship, everybody being included, smiles on the faces. They're selling a dream. They're not selling food. They're selling smiles and everybody happy and functional. Right. They're selling a dream. We've been, we've had everything spun and marketed to us. And then when people go home and compare their reality to the marketed dream, then they wind up disappointed. And they're stuck. They're saying, why don't we feel that way when we go there? Why don't we feel that when we come home? And so they feel disappointed and they're stuck. And so you know, I think people, it's not what happens in your life that upsets you. It's if your expectations of what's supposed to happen get violated. You know, if, if you go into a marriage and, and you think, oh, you know, my wife's going to meet me at the back door every day naked with a martini, mm -hmm. and she doesn't, then you think, oh my gosh, I don't have a good marriage. But if you go into it thinking, you know what, we're going to share time, space, money, division of labor, there are going to be some ups and downs. And then you get into it, and you're sharing time, space, labor, and there are some ups and downs. You say, okay, that's what I expected. But the other person would think that's terrible because it's not what they expected. That's not what they expected. When your violations are, when your expectations are violated, that's when you have a bad reaction. And so is the reason why people get stuck and stay stuck because of their expectations or because, I mean, I've seen, you know, so many shows those of my own and yours too, where people just don't know the how. They don't know how to get themselves. I think there's more to it than the how, though, because it seems to me that people get in a comfort zone. Yeah. And in taking a risk, there are two kinds of risks that, that people are afraid to take. One is they might fail. And, yeah. you know, our number one fear of all people is rejection, is right? rejection which is failure. Yeah, which is Because it, it, it's the same as failure because let's say you open a bicycle shop and so you open it, you open your doors, you hang up your sign, and nobody comes. That's rejection. They've rejected what you offer to the world. So Correct. you fail. So they're afraid if they get out of the comfort zone, they'll fail. But you know what the real scary thing is if they get out of their comfort zone? Is that they succeed. Because what happens now, you're expected to keep that up. Yeah. If all of a sudden you do better and you, you achieve more and you do more, because when you're in your comfort zone, let's say you make $50,000 a year. Where do you live? You live in neighborhoods where people live that make $50,000 a year. You drive cars that people that make $50,000 a year. You go to places, right. vacations. And now you make $75,000 a year. 
you got to have new friends, new cars, new neighborhood, and you're expected to keep it up. You've shown you can do it. Now the pressure's on. Can you continue to do it? What scares people the most is not failing, but succeeding, because now they're ex they expect more, and that's pressure. And people don't know how to respond to the pressure. Is that what they don't know how? It's like I can I feel much safer if I don't put that pressure on myself. Yeah. And so it's not about how, it's about how not. If I, so they get stuck in the comfort zone, and then days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and then they look back and they go, oh my God, it's now been two decades of me doing what I don't want, getting what I don't want, and I never planned for that to happen. That's why I always love you used to say, and how's that working for you? Yeah. How's that working for you? Not but, at all. That, but you say that the road to change actually starts with taking ownership of the role that each person plays in their own lives. So how have you been able to, over the years, in all kinds, and, and it's so interesting how you watch the shows, and after a while, all the problems, there's a thread, there's a common denominator that goes through I think every problem is there not? There, oh, absolutely. And, there and, is. and one of those is accountability. I mean, I, you see people not being accountable yeah. for their own stuff. Until you realize there's only one person in this life that you control. Others you can inspire, others you can coach, others you can coax. But the only one you control is you. I look at it this way it's like I'm a life coach and I got one client, me. Yeah. And until I hold my feet to the fire and say, if I, don't, if I don't have the quality of emotional connection in my marriage, the only person I control is me. I got to look at me for that. If I don't have the connection to God that I want to have, that's not God's problem. That's my problem. Yeah. Until I own that, then I'm not, it's like me waiting for you to give me my car keys and you don't have them. Uh, we can sit here yeah. all day. You don't have them. You can't give them to me. I've got them. I got until I get them from me. I, I, I just might as well sit on on a rock and stare at the sun because I can't get them from anybody but me. So that's what where most people go off or go wrong. I think is that the minute something goes uh, astray in their lives, they immediately point the blame instead of looking inside themselves or looking for the accountability within themselves. Yeah. Remember your third grade teacher? Yeah. She said every time you point your finger at somebody, there's three pointing back at you? Yeah. I mean, I was in the third grade. I mean, it's, and it's the good news, bad news. You know, the good news is the only person you control is you. The bad news is the only person you control is you. Yeah. It all comes down to you. And the weakest that we are ever in our lives is when we put on the victim hat. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that people don't get mugged, uh, raped, run over by cars. Are they victims in that moment? Of course they are. Yeah. The question becomes, okay, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. 
Yes, I, I mean, there's so, I mean, there's so many shows that you've done, but one of the big moments, aha moments for me on the Oprah show early on is a woman who'd been betrayed by her husband and she said she didn't know how to trust anymore. And you asked her, but can you trust yourself? And I think that's where a lot of people are failing. They said they don't trust themselves. Sure. Yeah. I, I've had people say, you're going to do business with this guy? He's crooked as a dog's hind leg. <laughs> I mean, this guy's so crooked he screws his socks on in the morning. Okay, I got it. But I trust me to know that yeah. and deal with it. Uh -huh. I'm going to verify everything they say. I'm going to check. I'm going to do this because I trust me to handle that. I don't need to trust him. I need to trust me. And once I do, the more I trust me, the more I can trust other people. So how did you get to be this good? You've actually gotten better. I didn't <laughs> think you could get better. But you, are, I would have to say, um, if the building's on fire, the mountains, I thought about you when the, when the mudslides were coming down, the mountains coming down and the building's on fire and it's flooding, the house is flooding, I'm going to look for you to lead me out. I'm flattered. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look for, I'm going to go follow that guy. And how did you get to be, obviously, after doing 16 seasons and talking to everybody from every possible range of dysfunction and human behavior, you, you get pretty good at it and you get better at it. But this is like a calling or a gift or something, don't you think, of yours? You know, I'll tell you something that I've, I've never said before. Really? This is, this is something I've never said before. You know, my dad and I did not get along. Um, not all the time, but yeah. most of the time we didn't get yeah. along uh, because he was a violent alcoholic and um, <clears throat> he was violent in the home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I can remember after my little sister's wedding, um, I, I had to get him out of there because he was a drunk, I had to get him home. And your sister's and, married young to get away from it, did oh, they not? did they ever. Yeah. Often. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, we, we, we got home, and within the first five minutes, he tore the vena hood off above the stove. He kicked all the back windows out of the house, leaning through the back windows, trying to get a hold of me as I was getting my mother out of there. I mean, it was that kind of thing, yeah. you know, violent. Um, Raging, yeah. out, drunk, but but only when out he was control. drunk. Only when he was drunk. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which was most of the time. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you know, and I, I must say, in the last few years of his life, he sobered up, oh. uh, enrolled in the da Dallas Theological Seminary, got his master's degree in theology, and really turned his life around. I give him credit for that. And so I had those few good years with him, um, but. The thing I've never said before is he knew he was dying. His heart was failing. It was not repairable. And he had gone to the doctor uh, for a follow-up visit. He came home, and I went by, and I said, so what did they tell you? And he said, well, let's just put it this way. Don't buy me any green bananas. <laughs> and that was his way of saying, I'm not going to be around not, long. don't have much to go. Yeah. And I remember that day he told me, um, and this was before I knew you. Mm -hmm. It was before I'd been on the show. It was before I'd done anything of that nature. He said, 
I don't know how you're going to hear this, but he said, the day is going to come when you are going to have an opportunity to speak to a lot of people. You're going to have the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and there are times in people's lives when they come to the precipice where all things wrong can be made right, where they have opportunities to really make changes in their lives, but people have a difficult time recognizing those moments, and you will point those moments out. I know that. Wow. And he died within 24 hours. Wow. And for him to share that with me was really unusual because we didn't have that kind that of kind conversation. Of but he had a sense of urgency after that he felt like there were things he needed to get said yeah. before he left. And that was one of the things he said to me. It's like a prophecy over your life. Yeah, it's, But at the time you didn't know what that meant or? I, no, I, I didn't know what that meant. I, you know, because I've always been a kind of a leader. Mm -hmm. I've always been the captain of a sports team or whatever, but uh, he was talking about something different. He was very specific. He said, they're gonna, people have opportunities in their lives to make decisions that matter. Yeah. And they miss those opportunities and you're gonna point them out. You're going to see them, and you're going to point them out. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. How uh, soon after that did we meet? Because uh, we met in '98. Yeah, this he he passed in '92, I believe mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. So it was a while, but I never forgot what he said, and it really resonated with me. And didn't you not too long ago, maybe what eight, nine years ago, have a dream about him where? He came to you, and in, in, you were dreaming, right? It, I don't know. And again, I haven't talked about this very much because I don't. I'm not a psychic. A yeah, you woo woo know, guy. I, you know me. I'm not. No, I know you're not. And uh, but I was in Houston, and I'd been down working with Chip on something, mm -hmm. um, and Chip the lawyer, Chip Babcock lawyer extraordinaire mm -hmm. and I had what I assumed was a dream because it was but it it was not I've never had another dream like it it was as clear as you and I sitting right here and it was with my dad you were sleeping I was sleeping and it was during the night and my dad had broken his leg badly during a drunken mm -hmm. scenario and he had to have a fusion in his ankle and, and so he limped he didn't limp in, in the dream. dream. It was like everything was fixed, no problems, no health problems. And we spent an afternoon together in Houston walking around and talking. And I had followed my own advice about don't let the sun set before you tell the people you love the things you need to say, good or bad. Mm -hmm. Either get it off your chest or tell yeah. them how much you love them. Say it, do it. And I, I really felt like I had done that. Yes. But when that finality of the death hits, you realize, wow. There are lots of things left There's unsaid. no do-overs here. Yeah, no do-overs. I didn't dig as deep as I needed to. And I, I was, I woke up a changed man from that dream because we shared a lot. We laughed. It was not 
it was not one of those profound things where you talk about the origin of the universe. We talked about things in our lives. We apologized to each other for things we'd said or done. We laughed about the cowboys. We talked about things that fathers and sons do. And it seemed like it lasted for hours, but it couldn't have been more than, you know, yeah. it was in the early So morning. what you had in the dream, you were able to find the intimacy and connection in a way yeah. that you hadn't when he was alive. And when I woke up, I no longer had unfinished emotional business with my father. Yeah. And I had a lot before I went to bed that night. And, I, and he wasn't even on my mind. Interesting. But it just, it was the most single powerful experience like that I've ever had. And I don't know, what, what do you think it was? I think it was your father coming to help you make peace with whatever yeah. you needed. And I think also, uh, I experienced this many times I could feel that kindnesses and grace being shown me in areas of my life was a direct, was in direct correlation to how I had helped somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that you can be who you are on that show every day, literally changing people's lives and doing what your father said, pointing them in, in the best direction for themselves and helping them to figure out who they are supposed to be in the world without the energy of that coming mm -hmm. back to you. Well, a profound thing happened during that time that I was with him. I say with him, because mm -hmm. it was that yeah. much. Yeah, palpable. Was, yeah. Um, in the 42 years that I lived before he died, and I think I'd had a pretty successful life mm -hmm. in those 42 years. I'd. You know, I'd gone to school and graduated number one as an undergraduate and uh, had my Ph.D. and made a lot of money and mm -hmm. had a wife and a wonderful family. Boys, yeah. And, yeah, you know, just, I think I was a good citizen. I think I'd done a lot of good things. Um, but he had never one time in 42 years ever said he was proud of me. Ever. Not in peewee football. Not when I got a scholarship for football to college. Not when I got a tennis scholarship to college after I couldn't play football anymore. Not when I graduated number one. Not, ne never. Never. Not one time did he ever say he was proud of me. But he did that night. And that was the completion that you yeah. needed. That was as much as you needed. Because I've always said, sometimes you have to give yourself what you wish you would get from someone else. Yeah. And I'd always done that. He didn't tell me, but I'd look in the mirror and say, you know, I am proud of you. Well, you know, that is one of the big lessons I learned from you that I pass on to my girls all the time, my girls from South Africa, that, you know, who have come from a lot of them, uh, challenged, um, disenfranchised backgrounds where you didn't get the love you needed. And so for people who didn't get the love they need, no matter where it is you grew up, you spend the rest of your life trying to fill that thing, mm -hmm. do you not? Oh, you do. Yeah. And that's why I try to teach people who can't get that from someone else to learn to give it to themselves, to learn to say... Because your parents can only give yeah. you what they had. If they don't have it, if they're so broken that they don't have it to give, if they're emotionally bankrupt because of the generational legacy of pain being passed down instead of love and nurturance, they were never filled up Enough. to give it to you. Right. And so I, I try to teach people, you know, learn to give that to yourself, which I did. I, I, I learned to 
realize, hey, you know, you're a good father. You're, you're a good husband. You're a good citizen. You're, you're, a, you're a good person. Um, and that's a substitute. It's not a perfect substitute, but it's a good substitute. Yeah. Uh, but it did mean something, you know, that night when I heard him say, and it wasn't, oh, by the way. He sat down and told me, I am proud of these things. And it was my deficiency that I was unable to tell you that. And I tell you that now. Mm. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. Would you say you forgave him that night? Did you I did. You reached a point of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And how important is forgiveness in the healing of the human condition? I think it's at the core, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in two ways. Um, and it's misunderstood because people think it's this wave that washes over you. And it's not, it's a choice. You choose to forgive. And secondly, it doesn't mean that you forget. And it doesn't mean that you say what they did was okay. It just means that you choose to forgive them for what they did to you, real or perceived. And I've forgiven people in my life that have no idea they transgressed against me. Mm. Because I just did not want to spend life energy with bitterness and hatred towards them because it changes who I am as a husband and a father and a friend and a person. You, it's like the smell of a skunk. Mm -hmm. It's so pervasive, it goes into every aspect of your life. You think, oh, I, I only hate this person. I'm only mad at this person here. I'm only bitter towards this person here. That's not true. That's such a pervasive emotion. It colors everything. It's so core that if you don't give that up, that it colors everything you look at, touch, feel, interact with. That's how important it is. It's pervasive. So when you started out, I remember you telling me the story about like when you first started uh, just counseling people one-on-one, -on -one, how, first of all, it, it takes such a long time because you're not supposed to really tell people what their problems are. You're supposed to let them figure it out. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> I was the worst marriage counselor in the world. Were you? <laughs> I was. Really? Because yeah. you just say, y'all need to, y'all need oh, to. Oh, 10 minutes in, I'd say, I can't stand either one of you. No longer, <laughs> no wonder you can't get along. <laughs> I can get a divorce for sure. <laughs> get out. I was not good at it. Not good at it. Well, I mean, I'd sit there and say, look, I can talk to you for six months and tell you you're a jerk, or I just tell you now, <laughs> you're a jerk. No wonder she can't put up with you. <laughs> and all my colleagues would say, you're, you're, you're going to starve to death. You'll never have a practice. That's not true. I mean, you, you need to see these people for six months, not six hours. That's not true. 
And it wasn't true. I mean, I had more people see that I could shake a stick at because people knew me. He'll tell you the truth and get it over with. And get it over with, get it done. Yeah. So what do you love about what you're doing every day now? Oh, wow. Um, You have to love it because you just extended to 2020. Yeah, yeah, I do. I I do love it. Um, uh, I love it because it's it's an opportunity to impact so many people I feel like I talk about things that matter to people who care. Um, you know, my I know some shows here in in Hollywood. They pull up at a curb down at Hollywood and Vine in a bus and say, "Want to go see a TV show?" Yeah, and bring people over and put them in the audience. That's not my audience. I mean, my audience they book six months, eight months in advance, and yeah. they they want to be there and. I think I'm talking about things that matter to the people that are watching. And, you know, think about it. Uh, I remember when we were launching the show, um, people said, do you think it's going to matter that Oprah's not going to be there anymore? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, nah. <laughs> Let's see, we're going we're gonna to eliminate the most clarion voice in the history of television. I think it's going to matter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to matter. Oh, yeah. uh, I think it's going to matter a lot. And they said, well, why do you think it's going to work? And I said, well, you're delivering common, sensible, usable information to people's homes every day for free. Information that's relevant to their marriage, their family, their children, their, themselves. If that doesn't work, um, it's because I don't do it very well. And because you're never going to run out of people never. with problems. No. You, are, you are never going to uh, run out of people. And you know, Oprah, I'm seeing problems now that didn't even exist when I started. The first text hadn't been sent. There was no Facebook. There, oh, there was right. no cyberbullying. That's right. There was no cyberbullying. There, there was no sexting. There was no, these kids weren't meeting predators in chat rooms. None of this stuff even existed when I started. That's right. I mean, how many people, how many marriages have fallen apart over texting? Oh my gosh. Oh Oh my my gosh. gosh. Yes, yes. So the challenges are new and they're ever changing. But are the solutions the same? The root solutions? The root solutions, the core values that are at the center of the solutions are the same because it comes down to human decency, integrity, and loyalty, all of those things that are the same when we were a low-tech society in the 40s and 50s versus a high-tech society now. There is a very different element to relationships, though, now that we didn't have then, and particularly with millennials, because back then there was a progression through steps of a relationship. You'd meet, you'd date for a little while. Yeah. Then you have that first kiss. Then you try to get to first base, second yeah, base. Yeah. Then you, you go there through really engagement. There really was trying to get to know a person. Yeah, you, and through that time you got to know them. You dated him and her when they had the flu. You went through. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. saw a lot of things, ups and downs. Now everything is hyper fast. You're speed dating. You're you're meeting people on the internet. You don't really know them. And our kids are seeing things now. I mean, even network television is so sexually provocative. I mean, when we were growing up, 
I mean, Matt Dillon still hasn't kissed Kitty. <laughs> I mean, you look at, at Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore and when Lucy they were married. And Ricky, yeah. They, they slept in snowsuits and twin beds. <laughs> That's what we saw. Look at what kids are seeing now. Yeah, it's, it's unfathomable. Before they're maturationally ready, emotionally to handle those challenges, we're throwing all that on them now. That wasn't thrown on us back then. We had more time. And where is that going to lead us to, Phil, really, honestly? Do you think? Well, I think it leads us to houses built on sand, relationship-wise, because you don't have a quality relationship is built on a solid underlying friendship. And if you don't have time to build that friendship, come on. Yeah. I mean, you, you, how can you know what the other person really likes and what they need and and what their vulnerabilities are and, and how you can really support them if you don't really know them. You know, Robin and I have been together 45 years. We've been married 41, been together 45, and we know a lot about each other. And, and we did before we got married. We've been together four or five years. Mm -hmm. And now that's not the norm. I mean, I, I don't think... Our and she kids, still has sat in the audience of every single Dr. Phil show. She has never missed one. I, when she started, I go, well, that's going to last a year. Yeah. or that's gonna, and She's at there at every single taping. And I, you know, I asked her, I said, you know, don't you, I mean, I, don't you get tired of, and she said, I never know what you're going to say next. She said, you just, you're not the kind to repeat yourself. I you, you never know what they're going to say, so I never know what you're going to say. And I, she said, I just, I never know what you're going to say. And I just sit there just shuddering, oh, God, what's he going to say uh, now? <laughs> but she has confidence that it's going to be the, yeah. the right thing. Our conversation will continue in the next episode. You can listen by downloading part two. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.